Good morning, everyone. There's uh, one more announcement that uh, we should make, and that is that our brother Kevin Specht has a, officially applied for membership in our church. So Kevin's been with us for, for some time, and uh, you've been a blessing to us, Kevin, and we're, we're looking forward to you becoming an official member. So uh, please get to know Kevin if you haven't already. Ask him about his uh, uh, journey in Christ, and we are looking forward to that. All right, well, let's read the scriptures together. We are finishing up Romans chapter 10 this morning, so I'll read the passage. It's Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? <coughs> Pardon me. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The word of God. William Carey is known as the father of the modern mission Movement. He lived from 1761 to 1834. He's from England. And he attended a uh, leader, uh, a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s. And during that meeting, William Carey was young, younger. He was a newly ordained minister, and he stood up during this meeting. And he, he urged his fellow ministers to uh, get involved, to encourage, to do what they can to get the word of God to the heathen, to, the, uh, to those who hadn't heard the gospel. And he was abruptly interrupted during that meeting by an older minister who said to him, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. 
When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And that kind of sentiment that that older minister uh, gave voice to, that is what is known in theological circles as hyper-Calvinism. That's not a Calvinist who's hyperactive. Hyper-Calvinism is basically taking the, the teaching of the sovereignty of God to an unbiblical con, uh, conclusion. And that conclusion is that basically God will save people with or without us. And if you think about what we've been seeing in the book of Romans, what that old minister gave voice to is basically Romans chapter 9, where Paul sets forth the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, and in particular in the area of human salvation. And it's absolutely true. God is absolutely sovereign over all things in his creation, including human salvation. We saw, for example, in verses 15 and 16, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then Paul concludes, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then later on, we're told that God is the potter and we're the clay. And he has absolute right over the clay to make from the same lump vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. But, but, the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation is not the end of the story. It encapsulates everything to do with our salvation, but in terms of how we get the gospel out, how we communicate the gospel, how we proclaim the gospel to every creature, even to the ends of the earth, in God's sovereignty, he has determined to use the likes of us. He has chosen to involve us in the process. And so we would say Romans chapter 10 goes together with Romans chapter 9. They don't contradict each other. They don't cancel each other out. They work together in God's mind perfectly. They fit together like a hand in a glove without contradiction. And so what we're going to see in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21, basically the big picture is Israel's accountability because that was the historical circumstance that Paul is dealing with. Uh, in chapter 9, it's going to go on through chapter 11. Um, what happened with Israel regarding the gospel? What's the story with them? And uh, it's that historical circumstance that Paul uses to address the sovereignty of God, but also the responsibility of man in Romans chapters 9 and 10. So the umbrella theme here in these verses is Israel's 
accountability for how they responded to the gospel. So with that introduction as the, um, as the backdrop, let, let's dive in. In verses 14 uh, through 17, Paul basically deals with how someone comes to faith. So note verse 14, the first question. Paul asks, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And this, of course, connects verse 14 uh, with the previous paragraph, especially verse 13, where Paul said, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And uh, remember from a couple of weeks ago, that's a quote from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. And this, this prophecy from Joel has to do with the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh, all people groups, all families, all nations of the earth. And that is to the end that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So then, Paul begins to ask the series of questions in verses 14 uh, and following. Uh, they're really common sense questions that link the preaching of the gospel with the salvation of individual sinners. And when he says uh, in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Re remember that to call on the name of the Lord is to cry out to him in faith for his saving mercy and grace. It's not just a formula. Uh, it's not just a canned prayer as if a prayer has some sort of inherent power to save. No, it's the cry coming from the heart. It's the cry of the repentant tax collector that uh, Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is this cry to the Lord. It's the heart of the thief on the cross when he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's the confession that Paul had already written about in Romans chapter 10. Remember verses 9 and 10? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And here in verse 14, Paul is emphasizing that calling on the name of the Lord requires faith. It's the fruit of faith. The word believed there at the end of that question in verse 14 is a very important word. It's used a lot in the New Testament. When it's used as a noun, it's the word uh, pistis. 
when it's used as a verb to believe or to have faith, it's the word pistuo. And it's a very important concept. It means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To believe in, to have confidence in, to rely on, to, to trust. It, it's not just empty words. It's not just something in your head alone. But it's something that comes from the heart. To trust. And Paul here emphasizes that this cry to the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord, is part and parcel with saving faith. And he goes on in verse 14, the second half of verse 14. So how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? People must hear the gospel in order to be saved. They must hear the message of Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, his being raised again for our justification, what that means in order for them to be saved. The gospel is a message. It's not a feeling. It's not a formula. It's not an incantation. It's not magic. It's a message. It's propositional truth that must be heard, understood, and embraced. And God uses human messengers to spread the gospel message. God could have, he had the power, he had the ability to announce the gospel from heaven himself. God could have sent angels. By the way, the word angel is an English translation of the word, the, English, the Greek word angelos, which literally means messenger. So God has this whole um, species of beings, spiritual beings known as angels, whose job it is to be God's messengers. God could have used angels to spread the gospel around the world, but that is not what God has ordained. That's not what God has called for. Not angelic angels, but human messengers. Notice the third question in verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The word preach or preaching there is an important word too. It's the word keruso. 
Um, and the, the picture is basically of someone who goes from a king with a royal message, a, a proclamation, an announcement from the king. And so the idea there is that the, the herald who goes forth from the king with the king's message does not interact with the people and negotiate about what the message is. He doesn't take an opinion poll to try to figure out what people want to hear or what they think the king's message should be. The king's message belongs to the king. The king says, here is my message. I'm going to entrust this message to you, my messengers, my heralds. You now go and proclaim that message faithfully. That, that's the idea. It's God's message proclaimed God's way with God's authority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul wrote, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Preaching and the thing preached go hand in hand. And it's, and it's a reminder that what we are supposed to be doing in this world and what we're supposed to be doing when we have souls in this building rear ends in our seats is not to be tickling ears, not to be talking about politics primarily, not to telling you, not to, uh, to tell people how to have their best life now or so many things that take place in gatherings like this. Sadly, what we're supposed to do is to preach the gospel. Amen. Preach the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message that God has given to us. And it is a proclamation. That doesn't mean that there's no place for dialogue or getting to know people and uh, learning their background and where they're coming from. No, there's, uh, that's required. That's what the Apostle Paul did at times. But when he stood up to preach, he preached. And I believe that this is why preaching is in such disfavor today. Even the word preach. Don't preach to me. Preaching itself is in disfavor. And it's not just because of the medium itself. I mean, if, if you think about it, last Tuesday, our president gave the State of the Union and he spoke for 70 minutes straight. And it wasn't a dialogue it was a monologue. It, it's not just that the medium of a, an address, a monologue, a lecture, 
is out of favor because people will tolerate it. But what has grown out of favor is this fact, this reality, that what Christian preachers are called to, to preach is God's message and God's message alone. People don't want to hear from God. That is why preaching is by and large unpopular today. Well, let's finish Paul's line of reasoning. We've uh, seen three of his questions that he raises in verse 14. There's another one that begins verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And the idea here, again, back to the imagery of a king and his messengers or, or heralds, um, God sends forth, he sends out preachers. Paul himself was sent out. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, remember the Holy Spirit spoke to the church in Antioch and he said to the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And there's a sense in which all Christians are called by God to preach the gospel. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But at the same time, in the great work of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, to fulfilling the great commission of making disciples of all the nations, which includes establishing local churches, central to the great commission are missionaries sent out by God, yes, but by God through local churches, even as the Apostle Paul was sent out by his own local church in the church of Antioch. How are they to preach unless they are sent? And one more word on that. Preaching is not always glamorous. In fact, I'll go out on a limb and say it's never glamorous. But sometimes it's more challenging than at other times. Sometimes Christian preachers open up their mouths risking their lives for Jesus. And it's really important, it's really important for gospel preachers to know that they are doing what they are doing at that moment because they've been sent. They know that they've been sent. They know that God has sent them because God has worked through the hearts and minds and consciences of his people in the church in sending them out. So it's very important to have that confidence, not in themselves, but in their being sent. And then notice the second half of verse 15. It's a great message that we as Christians have. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And this is a, 
citation from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. And the setting there in Isaiah is the, the history of Israel of enduring captivity in, in uh, Egypt in the days of Moses and then in uh, Isaiah's day in Assyria. And then God says that uh, this state of bondage, this state of captivity is not going to be the permanent state for Israel. He's going to liberate them and he's going to send the message of their liberation through messengers. And that's where this quotation from Isaiah 52 and verse 7 comes from. But Paul applies this, pro this prophetic hope to the preaching of the gospel. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if, if it was good news for Israel to be told of her freedom from captivity in another nation, how much better news is it for sinners like us to be told of the gospel of our salvation from sin, our deliverance from captivity to sin, and, and our redemption from hell, and our being given the gift of eternal life. That is not only good news, it's the best news. It's the most glorious good news imaginable. And then moving on, first part of verse 16, but Paul says, in spite of this line of reasoning, calling on the Lord because we believe in the Lord because we heard the message, because someone sent a preacher. And how beautiful that message is. But, however, nevertheless, in spite of all that, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Don't forget that this was the thought that Paul began his whole discussion of the sovereignty of God with in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, etc. And in verse 16 the fact that the Jews in particular, because that is who he's thinking about, the fact that the Jews in particular had not obeyed the gospel, by the way, notice that the gospel is a message to be obeyed. It says first and foremost that because of what Jesus has done for sinners like us, then we are called by God to repent and believe. And if we don't do that, then we do not obey the gospel. But anyway, Paul is saying here that um, this lack of obedience to the gospel on the part of the Jewish people 
has its roots back in the Old Testament itself, even the experience of the prophet Isaiah. So here he's going to quote from Isaiah again, this time chapter 53 and verse 1, where Paul writes, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And by the way, that then begins that glorious chapter of Isaiah chapter 53 of the incredible work of redemption on the part of God's suffering servant. But Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed? God gave Isaiah a message to preach, to preach, and he preached it to the Jews in Old Covenant Israel. By and large, they rejected that message. And Paul is saying that's the same spiritual dynamic that was at play in his place and time. That's why the Jews, by and large, were rejecting the gospel. There's nothing new. And then here's Paul's summary of what he's been saying in verse 17. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. Of Christ. This is how it all comes together. If somebody is going to be saved, they must hear the gospel, they must believe the gospel, and God will save them through the gospel. But they must hear. And what is it that we must hear? The word of Christ. We must hear the voice of God through the word of Christ, which earlier we're told is the gospel itself, which is a really interesting way of putting it because Christ himself is the word, remember? In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus, and the word was With God and the word was God. Jesus is the word and the gospel is the word of Christ. It's all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is. What he came to accomplish. What it means to be saved by him. What it means to follow him. What it means to know him. To love him. That's the word of Christ. And that is what the Christian faith is all about. So, that's how someone comes to faith in Christ. Next, Paul turns his attention really specifically now to the people of Israel, the the Jewish people in his time. Israel's rejection of the gospel verses 18 through 21. So in verse 18, here's another question from Paul. But I ask, have they not heard? So maybe the problem with the Jews, by and large, not accepting Christ as their Messiah, maybe the problem was Well, they just didn't hear. 
Paul says, nope. Indeed, they have for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And here Paul is quoting from Psalm 19 and verse 4, which is an interesting quotation. Do you remember what Psalm 19 is all about? The heavens declare the glory of God and the, the firmament shows forth his handiwork. It, it, it's about um, the revelation of the glory of God in creation. And it's in that context that the psalmist says their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. It's the voice, it's the words of general revelation that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, by the way. General revelation that is available to everyone, whether they have a Bible or not, whether they've heard a preacher or not. The heavens are constantly declaring the glory of God. All of creation is constantly preaching the fact that there is a God and he's all-powerful and he's holy. He deserves to be worshipped. And what's interesting about Paul's quotation here from Psalm 19 and verse 4 is that, is that he uh, applies this worldwide scope of general revelation. He applies that to the preaching of the gospel. That's not what Psalm 19 and verse 4 means in its original context. But Paul is applying this universal scope to the preaching of the gospel in the new covenant age. And even in the first century, this was taking place. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, um, a bunch of Jewish people, Jewish men, were persecuting uh, Christian leaders. And in persecuting these Christians, they said, these men have turned the world upside down. And that is exactly what was happening. Justin Martyr, the second century church father, wrote this. There is no people, Greek or bar barbarian, or any other race, by whatever appellation or manners they may be distinguished, however ignorant of arts or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and Creator of all things. The, the gospel uh, in the second century had already spread to the end of the known world at that time. Tertullian, who wrote some 50 years after Justin Martyr, wrote this, we are but of yesterday. In other words, the, the Christian movement was of recent origin. We are but of yesterday, and yet 
we already feel your cities, islands, camps, your palace, senate, and forum. We have left you only your temples. So even in Paul's day, it was absolutely true that the gospel had gone out through all the earth and its words to the end of the world. The, the Jewish people in the first century, along with the rest of the known world at that time, had heard the message of the gospel. Their lack of faith in Jesus was not the result of them not hearing. Then Paul asks a second question here. In Romans chapter uh, 10 and verse 19 now. But I ask, remember he began verse 18, but I ask, verse 19, but I ask again, did Israel not understand? Maybe the word of the gospel went out, but it was in some sort of unknown tongue. It was in a language that the Jews couldn't understand. Paul's appeal is to the Old Testament again. This time, uh, it's the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32 and verse 32. Here's how Paul quotes it. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And the idea there is um, a mass of unorganized humanity, like a mob. Heathen, barbarians, especially in comparison to Old Testament Israel, who had a very sophisticated government and legal and moral code and national religion, highly civilized. And yet God says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. A foolish nation who didn't know Jehovah, the God of the Bible. Then he quotes from Isaiah again in verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. This is now is from Isaiah 65 and verse 1. Isn't it amazing how often the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament? And especially in the book of Romans. Paul is determined to make sure that it's clear to his readers that he and his fellow apostles are not creating something entirely new. This is the fulfillment of what was promised under the old covenant. But this time, in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 1, the emphasis is on the sovereignty of God 
in bestowing salvation on whomever he wills. And remember, chapter 9, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And here in chapter 10 and verse 20, I have have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And it's not that seeking the Lord is a bad thing. Of course it's a good thing. We're invited to seek the Lord while he may be found. But the big picture here is that here you have Israel with all of her privileges, all of the revelation that God had given to Israel through the law of Moses and through the prophets. And you have Israel's daily life that revolved around religion, the worship of Jehovah. And yet so many of them did not know Jehovah. And in contrast to that, to this whole nation that was so religious, that had a high view of the scriptures, in contrast to them, God was going to reveal himself to the heathen. Guess what? That's why we're here. This, brothers and sisters, is us. We are the fulfillment of Romans 10 and verse 20. But that doesn't mean that God is done with the Jews. So in verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And this reminds us of a couple of things. For one thing, it reminds us of the words of Jesus just before he was crucified at the instigation of the Jews. Matthew 23 and verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Here's God in the Old Testament. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And this is a good lesson for us as well because it puts heart into the sovereign God. We are not robots and God is not a robot maker. God is not heartless. God is not emotionless. God is not the great eternal cosmic stoic. And he he watches people marching on uh, the broad road that leads to destruction. 
God does not watch that procession of people going to their destruction, going, oh, well, I created them for that purpose. God is complex and he's mysterious. And at the same time that he is absolutely sovereign and he is the great potter and we are the clay, at the same time, he says, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. At the same time, his son, who is God incarnate, says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. God grieves. God does not rejoice at the destruction of the wicked because they're destroyed at their own doing. Briefly, let me bring before you some uh, takeaways from this passage. Remember, the big idea here is um, Israel's accountability. And Paul has proven his point. He's made his case. The Jewish people, so Israel, was and continues to be completely accountable for her rejection of the gospel. This is included under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God the accountability, the, the responsibility of human beings like us, they go hand in hand. The sovereignty of God does not steamroll over man's accountability. And it's really as simple of as the gospel comes to you and you, and you hear it, what do you do with it? The, the sovereignty of God is constantly working behind the scenes. The sovereignty of God is the reason why the gospel was brought to you because he's always working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so where the gospel goes ultimately is under the sovereignty of God. It, it is because of the providence of God. And then, how come you hear the message of the gospel and then somebody sitting next to you hears the same message of the gospel, you believe it, and the person sitting next to you doesn't? That's the sovereignty of God working behind the scenes, turning the light on inside your soul, giving you spiritual understanding, changing your hard heart, giving you ears to hear. But he passed over another person, at least for now. So the sovereignty of God is always there. It's never compartmentalized. But our accountability is in our court. It's on our table. We can't blame God. We can't blame anybody else. 
What we do with the knowledge, with the revelation from God that he has brought into our experience, we are 100% accountable for. And like I said, that included the Jews of Jesus's and Paul's day and today, and it includes many of us in this room, maybe some of you younger people who have heard the gospel and to this point in time, you're not converted. We pray for you. Your parents pray for you. But if you meet your maker in that unconverted state, it's not going to do you any good on the day of judgment to say, but God, you made me like this. Or, but God, my parents did this to me and that to me. Or, but God, people in church are so mean and unfair. God is going to say, did you hear that you are a sinner before me and I sent my son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh? Did you hear the message of the cross? That my son died there on the cross as a substitute for everyone who would put their trust in him. Did you ever hear that you need to repent and believe? What did you do with it? Romans chapter 3, every mouth will be stopped. No excuses. No blame shifting. You and God. And the great question will be, what did you do with my son? What did you do with the message of the gospel? We are all accountable for that. Another takeaway from the passage is that as believers, we must do what we can to preach the gospel to as many people as we can. We need to take these words seriously and never forget them, never let them up. Never grow complacent, never grow weary. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Let's send and send and send and send. And no matter where we are, let's preach and preach and preach until we can't. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then the final takeaway is just a reminder from verse 15. Remember this quotation from Isaiah chapter 52? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's not that gospel preachers have beautiful feet. If I took off my shoes and socks and showed you my feet, no one would say, wow, Pastor Lynn, you have beautiful feet. I promise you. The reason why 
these feet are called beautiful feet is because of what they carry. They carry the good news of the gospel. It's the gospel that is beautiful. And so no matter who carries it and how ugly, really, their feet might be, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What a blessing, brothers and sisters, that in the midst of so much bad news, are we on the brink of nuclear war? Are we on the brink of World War III? What is the next uh, reading of the consumer price index going to give us? How high is the price of gas going to go? What is the next COVID variant that we're going to have to deal with? On and on and on. Bad news after bad news after bad news. But God has given us good news. Good news that transcends not just bad news, but any other kind of good news. Because it's about our relationship with him and where we will spend eternity and our outlook on life now. The gospel of God's grace. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice because God has saved us from our sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this glorious good news of your gospel. Would you help us to be faithful to get the message of the gospel out even to the ends of the earth in our own Jerusalem and beyond. And I do pray that you would do a powerful work of regeneration of new birth in the hearts of some maybe here this morning who have heard the gospel before and they've never obeyed it. May today be the day of their salvation, Lord. Save souls so that Jesus Christ would be glorified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.